0: This is Christian Knutson and John Klein Wilson with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Elected officials in Milwaukee are warning that the city could face financial ruin if lawmakers don't agree on a plan to increase state aid to Wisconsin's local governments. Milwaukee Mayor Cavalier Johnson was among those sounding the alarm during a legislative hearing at the Wisconsin State Capitol this week, the Associated Press reports. The Republican-controlled legislature is working with Democratic Governor Tony Evers and local stakeholders on a bill to give municipal governments a significant boost in state money. But Republican leadership in the Assembly and State Senate disagree over whether voters get the final say before Milwaukee City and County can raise local sales taxes. That has sparked worries that an impasse could sink the bill altogether. Johnson said not reaching a deal could force Milwaukee to make massive cuts to police and fire staffing, while smaller communities around the state will also struggle to pay bills. Supporters from both parties are urging legislative leaders to find a compromise.
1: Wisconsin is near the top of the list of states when it comes to prisoners locked up for crimes committed as children. Only Louisiana has more, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. A new report from the nonprofit group Human Rights for Kids shows more than 7% of people, uh, people in Wisconsin's adult prisons are there for crimes they committed when they were 17 or younger. That's more than double the percentage nationwide. The report also shows the state has one of the starkest racial divides when it comes to youth incarceration. Black Wisconsinites make up a full 60% of people held for crimes they committed as minors. Efforts over the last decade to overhaul the way the state prosecutes juveniles have largely stalled.
0: The Wisconsin Supreme Court will hear a case over whether religious charities can opt out of paying into the state's unemployment in, uh, unemployment insurance program. The case involves Catholic Charities Bureau, Inc., the social services arm of the Diocese of Superior. The organization has claimed a state tax exemption offered to religious organizations, but officials at state agencies argue the group is primarily a charitable organization offering secular services even if it was founded on religious principles. Lawyers for the Diocese of Superior argue the group's charity work can't be separated from religious beliefs. A lower court sided with the state last year.
1: Dane County will contribute $6.85 million to help Centro Hispano build a new headquarters on Madison's south side, according to a county press release. The money largely comes from federal allocations to Dane County under various programs. It's part of more than $20 million total being raised to help the social services nonprofit move to a new home. Centro Hispano provides direct services to members of the uh, county's fast-growing Latinx community, including helping people with basic needs, job training, and youth programming. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi says Centro Hispano has a, quote, profound impact on the Dane County community, and says the new building will help the organization significantly expand its services.
0: The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources has issued an air quality advisory for ozone until 11 p.m. tonight. The advisory covers a wide portion of the state, including Dane County. A National Weather Service alert warns that sun and atmospheric conditions are making air quality, quote, unhealthy for sensitive groups. Officials are cautioning people with lung diseases such as asthma, uh, children, older adults, and others to reduce prolonged or heavy outdoor exertion.
1: A downtown Madison addiction treatment clinic is set to close its doors at the end of the week. Monarch Health announced the closure on its website, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. The clinic opened in September 2020, providing counseling and medications to treat drug addictions, including methadone for opioid use disorder. The announcement did not cite a reason for the closure, but the clinic assured patients that they would be assisted in finding continuation of treatment. A new methadone treatment clinic is set to open in Madison next month.
0: Memorial High School students say they avoid the school's bathrooms whenever possible because of concerns for their safety. A group of five students spoke to the Madison School Board this week about the issue, the Capital Times reports. They say bathroom issues include the lingering smell of vaping or weed, fights, sexual activity, and other students staying in the bathrooms to skip class. One student told the board that he and his classmates forego food and water during the school day to avoid using the bathrooms. The students are asking for school staff to pay more attention to the bathrooms, including more frequent cleaning. In an email to the Cap Times, a school district spokesperson highlighted Memorial's addition of more gender-neutral bathrooms with single stalls and lockable doors.
1: And Madison officials are warning drivers to be aware of a traffic switch as construction continues on Atwood Avenue. Starting tomorrow, new lane shifts will be in effect between Cottage Grove Road and Fair Oaks Avenue, according to a city press release. That includes traffic weaving, weaving back and forth across existing lanes. Northbound traffic on Atwood will continue to be limited to one lane. Pedestrians going towards Ulbrick Park from Cottage Grove Road should use the new sidewalk on the lake side of Atwood, but meanwhile pedestrians coming from Fair Oak should keep using the sidewalk on the north side of the street. Construction is expected to be complete by fall 2023. And now, on to today's top stories.
0: Last month, the Madison Metropolitan School District released its proposed budget for the 2023-24 school year. This budget will be the last to utilize key funding lifelines for the district, leaving it in a precarious position going forward. WORT producer Nate Weggihout has more.
2: As the Madison Metropolitan School District continues to craft its budget for the upcoming school year, a new report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum finds that MMSD will be in an even tighter place than it is now without the help from the Republican-led legislature. The nonpartisan and nonprofit Policy Research Organization released its report last week, breaking down the projected future finances of both MMSD and Milwaukee Public Schools. The report says that the district has stayed afloat in recent years largely through temporary fixes, increased federal funding due to the pandemic, and a 2020 referendum. But the deadline to use those federal funds is fast approaching, and the last chance the district will have to use those funds is September 2024. Additionally, next year's budget is the final year the district's operating budget will increase from that referendum. That means that with MMSD's current projected 2024 budget, the district would have to spend over $30 million less than compared to 2023. Jason Stein, research director with the Wisconsin Policy Forum, says the current proposed budget is a worst-case scenario budget, assuming the district gets no additional state aid next year.
3: It's a sobering document in the sense that right now, the budget would decrease the total staffing at the district by 155 positions or 3.7 percent in 2024. And even with those cuts, the district has got to use some of the last of its federal pandemic funding to pay for 111 ongoing positions. But because that federal funding is temporary, that puts the district in a tougher or would put the district in a tougher position in 2025.
2: Part of the reason for MMSD's financial troubles is declining general school aid, the main form of state assistance to public schools across the state. That state aid is calculated through a formula that weighs local property values against what the district spends. Stein says that Madison's unique situation means that MMSD is put in a precarious position because it puts more of the burden on the taxpayer.
3: Districts that have higher than average property values and spending can receive less favorable treatment under that formula. And the district's property values have continued to rise rapidly. You know, its spending has increased in part because of the referendum. And so All of that leads to a a gradual erosion over time in, in that funding source.
2: General state aid for MMSD is projected to nearly reach its lowest level in over a decade next year at just over $37 million. Another reason for MMSD's woes are students moving away from public schools and instead enrolling in independent charter schools. Three independent charter schools have opened in Madison since 2018. When a student moves from MMSD to one of those charter schools, the district pays over $9,000 per student to the charter school. Stein says that that money comes right from the state aid that would have gone to the district.
3: If you're looking at the revenue limits, which sort of cap the total amount of funding that districts can take in from their their key revenues for education, or if you look at just state aid, both of those are tied to your enrollment. So there's a lag in, in when it happens, but over time, declining enrollment will lead to lower funding for the school district.
2: The new report comes as MMSD continues to struggle to retain teachers and staff. Earlier this year, MMSD proposed a 3.5% cost of living adjustment for staff, an increase that Madison Teachers Inc., the union representing MMSD teachers, says is inadequate. MTI says that in order to keep up with inflation, teachers and staff should be getting at least an 8% base wage increase. At a school board meeting last month where MTI teachers called on the school board to protest the modest proposed wage increase, Betty Jo Bradley, a third-grade teacher at Chavez Elementary, said that if teachers are not more adequately compensated, more and more teachers are going to be leaving the district. We don't have enough. We don't have enough staff. We don't have enough anything. We're all overworked. Our specials teachers are asked to cover for someone who's absent. Our coaches are subbing. Everyone's exhausted. We can't keep doing this. Earlier this year, Governor Tony Evers included several items in his proposed budget to help schools across the state. Namely, Evers proposed increasing revenue limits for schools by $350 per student in 2024 and another $650 per student in 2025. The Republican-led legislature, however, has said that they plan on reducing those increases, though they have not yet publicly stated by how much. The state's Joint Finance Committee is currently debating the state's upcoming budget and has not indicated when they will take up the topic of education. They are expected to send their final proposed budget to Governor Evers next month, where he can either sign, veto specific items, or even veto the entire budget. Even without help from the legislature, MMSD does have a few options on the table to get its budget in line. One option, the report says, is substantial cuts to almost all aspects of the district. The district's current proposed 2024 budget already calls for around 150 positions to be cut across the board and would fund nearly 200 positions with the final batch of one-time federal funds. But the district could go another route, authorizing another referendum to once again increase the operating budget. While voters overwhelmingly approved the last two referendums to increase the district's operating budget, it would still be a short-term fix. MMSD is slated to approve a preliminary budget sometime next month and adopt a final budget in October. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Hout.
1: As the state senate debated a proposed bill today to boost shared revenue uh, for local governments, those governments around Wisconsin agree that without help they could face dire consequences. But larger cities wouldn't be seeing as big a piece of the pie as smaller municipalities across the state, meaning that even the increased revenue wouldn't be enough to fix financial shortfalls in Madison. WORT producer Nate Wighout spoke to David Schmidke, finance director of the city of Madison, about how the bill would affect the city's budget.
2: Earlier today, the state senate held a hearing about the proposed shared revenue bill that looks to increase state aid to municipalities across the state. That comes as municipalities have been sounding the alarm about the dire state of funding for towns, with the city of Milwaukee saying that they could even face bankruptcy if change doesn't come soon. To find out about how this bill would affect Madison, I'm joined now by David Schmidke, finance director for the city of Madison. Uh, David, thank you so much for talking with me. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So, David, just as a baseline, where does Madison's finances currently stand? I know there's been a lot of talk in recent months, especially leading up to last month's election, about upcoming budget deficits. Uh, can, you, can you sort of lay out for me what is exactly currently being projected?
4: Sure. We're, we're in the midst right now of uh, looking at what the specific gap for the 2024 budget, so that'll be the budget that starts January 1st of 2024, will look like. But we made projections back uh, as part of the 2023 budget development process. And uh, those forecasts should not be changing much. And those showed that by 2027, the city could be facing a uh, deficits of between 25 to $30 million by that time. And
2: how would this proposed shared revenue plan, as it currently stands, affect Madison? I know it's still just a proposed plan, but for what it currently is, how would it affect Madison?
4: So the um, estimates that we've seen so far from um, what's been proposed is that Madison would see an increase of less than 2.8 million, so under three million dollars. And uh, you know, as you can see, if you compare that to our projected deficits, uh, it's a pretty small, small share in comparison to you know what we're looking at to maintain uh, current services that residents
2: expect. And why would Madison only get that small two-ish million dollars out of this proposed bill? Uh, How how exactly would this this sort of shared revenue plan work?
4: Sure, that's a great question. So, under the proposal, the amount of funding that would be provided would be about around two hundred and seventy million dollars statewide of an increase. So, some of that would go to counties, some of it would go to cities, towns, and villages. If you looked at uh, what's called shared revenue 20 years ago and simply grew it at the rate of inflation, cities, towns, villages, and counties are getting about $800 million less than what they would have gotten if that funding had grown in inflation. So you can see the overall funding level for the state that's being proposed uh, is considerably less than what that inflation increase would be. Secondly, the formula that's proposed for distributing the aid increase uh, basically provides more aid per capita to smaller communities uh, and much less aid uh, per capita, so per person, to, um, to Madison.
2: What would be needed for Madison to, to close this sort of deficit? What sort of options are on the table, both uh, that are in the, the city's control and what the legislature can do?
4: Well, first of all, just, you know, an additional shared revenue beyond what's being proposed and more along the lines of, you know, just what what it would have been if, if that shared revenue had grown at the rate of inflation, uh, that would be very helpful. So, for example, if Madison's shared revenue had grown at the rate of inflation over the last 20 years, we would be getting about... 12 to $13 million more than what we get right now. And so that, that would be a big part of trying to close this gap. I think beyond that, it's gonna to have to be looking at a range of options that include you know, service levels perhaps, efficiencies, as well as what limited new revenues the city can, um, can look at to help with maintaining current service levels.
2: And so, so, like you said, shared revenue sort of stayed stagnant for quite a while now. In your time uh, with the city of Madison here, have, have you seen sort of a situation like this uh, before in terms of the city's deficit?
4: Well, we faced gaps every year between costs, you know, the cost of maintaining current services and for all intents and purposes, what the state allows uh, Madison and cities and Towns and villages and counties throughout the state, what it allows to them to increase their revenues. So, and a big portion of that is the fact that there hasn't been growth in, in state aid comparable to rates of inflation. So that's a big part of this mismatch that's creating these deficits, not only in Madison, but throughout the state. And uh, I think it's becoming a you know, much larger share of the budget For Madison, particularly at this time of higher inflation, so costs are higher, um, in order to retain and attract staff to deliver those services, costs are going up as a result of that. And so um, the issues are becoming uh, much more pronounced as a result of that.
2: And I know in the past, the city has implemented things like a wheel tax in order to try and raise some revenue. Uh, are there any other sort of uh, smaller solutions that the city could do to address this deficit?
4: There are, like I said, there are some smaller, you know, more, much more limited options. As the state does not, uh, for example, give um, cities in the state, we don't have other revenue sources like a local sales tax that could help to close this gap. We're very limited on what we can increase property taxes. Uh, We do have some options for certain types of charges for services, but even those are fairly limited and we'll probably have to continue to look at those options in the absence of uh, some additional work on the shared revenue package uh, that's currently before the legislature.
2: Looking at Madison here, if this isn't addressed and uh, shared revenue stays low here for Madison, what you said, twenty twenty seven is sort of when when this will all hit. What would what would sort of that look like?
4: No, I was saying by twenty twenty seven, we will have deficits every year up until that point. It's just they continue to accumulate, and we'll have to do things as soon as in next year's budget, and we'll have to continue to do things every year after that, it's just the extent of what we'll need to do will really be affected by how much shared revenue increase is provided in this upcoming budget. So if we kind of are at what's currently proposed, more, um, whether it's uh, what limited revenue options we have will have to be employed, as well as perhaps looking at, uh, at service levels and uh, the way services are delivered.
2: I've been talking with David Schmiedeke, finance director for the city of Madison, about the proposed shared revenue bill going before the state legislature and the current state of Madison's finances. Uh, David, thank you so much for talking with me.
4: You're welcome.
1: The time is now 6.32 and you're listening to local news on WORT. I'm your host, John K. Wilson, here with my co-host, Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Next month, gun owners can give new life to firearms that they no longer want. Jeff Wild is a former pastor who's spending his retirement dismantling firearms and transforming them into garden tools. The event will take place Saturday, June 3rd at the parking lot of First United Methodist Church in downtown Madison from 8.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Wilde joined a public affair host, Uli Moldrew, along with Dan Elsus, a member of the First United Methodist Church in Madison, who is helping to organize the upcoming Guns to Gardens event earlier today.
5: How did you get involved with turning Guns Into Gardens?
6: Guns Into Garden Tools has been a movement that began emerging 10 years ago. There are two people, one named Mike Martin, who comes from the Mennonite tradition, and another activist and author named Shane Claiborne, who just serendipitously got together and began to turn firearms into garden tools and this is sort of a a connection with a, a scriptural verse from Isaiah where God is talking about a new age to come of turning spears into plowshares or swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks And that movement began, like I said, about 10 years ago. There's another organization, the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship, that has really lifted this up and provides training for any faith communities that want to host safe surrender events. So I was... Trained through that organization and hosted, work to host the first buyback event at Mid-
5: Midvale Community Lutheran Church
6: one year ago.
5: Dan, how long have you been part, part of organizing guns into gardening tools?
7: Just a little over a year and a half, Allie. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did this as a result of First United Methodist Church, which is our motto is downtown for good. And the, I found some fellow church members that were equally passionate about gun violence reduction. So we formed a study group that was probably late 2021. And uh, we started educating ourselves and also we want to educate the greater Madison community in both the causes of, of gun violence and mass shootings is, is basically what we started on. And also trying to do some lobbying We started out trying to lobby our state and federal legislators on several of the issues you just mentioned, what they call red flag laws, and also stricter uh, federal and state background checks for uh, those wishing to purchase firearms. And also, one of our key priorities is renewing the assault weapon ban that was in effect through the federal government from 1994 to 2004 but unfortunately sunsetted in 2004 hasn't been brought back since.
5: Dan and Jeff, I I think it's interesting to think about kind of how faith communities are positioned in the conversation around gun violence. Dan, you mentioned before the show that you're a former elected official. So I'm sure you know that faith communities have been frequently associated with conservatism in the United States and that conservatives have have made gun violence a partisan issue um, and have really made it about the rights of individuals to own and possess guns talk to me a a little bit about the politics of of the work that you're doing and you know how you reconcile those with your faith community
6: it's a big issue and a big question how faith communities relate to this part of the reason when i give demonstrations or presentations pertaining to gun violence Part of um, my motivation for continuing to address this issue is a group of people of a different branch of Christian faith than my own that holds the Second Amendment up to um, a standard that personally I don't agree with and I don't think holds the same authority as my understanding of uh, ethics shaped through biblical and theological study and reflection and shaping. One one reason I, I speak as I do when I give a presentation is to combat or repudiate the false teachings that are being perpetuated, especially through Christian nationalism. They elevate gun ownership to being a God-given right. I've heard that directly from, from that. And it struck me when I heard that, where does that come from? And I really tried to trace it. And you can trace that right back to Christian nationalism and a religion that says it's, it is a God-given right, which I disagree with. I don't believe it is a God-given right, and I don't elevate uh, the Constitution or the Second Amendment to say it's divinely inspired and absolute.
5: I want to ask you a little bit about how you turn a gun into a garden tool. Um, so I, I want to get into, you know, what that actually looks like. Are you all melting guns? Um, but before we talk about that, Dan, you brought in some some data and and stats on you know what gun gun ownership and gun violence really looks like, both nationally and locally. Can you talk to us a little bit about the reality of gun violence? I think often people think it's not that we have an issue with gun violence; it's that it stands out in our memories longer than other things when somebody walks into a school and shoots a large group of children.
7: Yeah, we all, I think, Allie, we tend to focus on the, you know, really mass uh, shootings, which are defined as four or more individuals are either killed or injured in a shooting. And there have been just in 2023 there have been 202 mass shootings in the first 143 days it's Um, more
5: than one a day
7: right like 1.3 something like that but specifically there's also and in 2022 there were 647 nationally so i mean those are horrific statistics but to break it down a little bit, the Pew Research Center in 2021 for that calendar year said gun-related deaths in the United States were at 49,000, and 54% of those deaths, however, were not related to either crimes or hom- or homicides or mass shootings. That 54% were gun assisted suicides
5: so the most likely person you will kill with your gun is you
7: right and also there's a figure that if you own a gun and have it in your house and not secured you're ten more times to have someone in your household badly injured or killed than you are to shoot an intruder but the getting back to the suicides and jeff was talking about they tend to be teenagers or or people in their early 20s who may or may not be having some mental mental crisis or they may be bullied at their schools those are the highest Uh, Amount 26,000 lives were taken because they got access probably to their parents or an older relative's weapons in the house. So when Jeff talks about the moral crisis, it's also, we in our study group at First United Methodists think that it's very much related to not enough counseling and mental health access by our youth and that can be in schools or community centers public health departments so we think that's a major component of this whole discussion
5: Thank you so much for bringing that that information. And I think that paints a, a really important picture in terms of the the real issue that is gun violence and how common an issue that is. I was going to ask right before we got into some really pretty tragic statistical information about how you turn guns into gardening tools. What, is, what does it look like to... Yeah, to re to reuse the materials associated with guns.
6: I, for me, it's a, a creative expression of my of my faith um, and the emphasis on transformation. But and it's it's a process. Um, it takes practice, like most crafts do. It's first of all, uh, so many people refer to, to it as melting guns down. Part of the what led me into this, I have a background uh, worked in college through my college years in a foundry, and uh, there you do melt steel down into a molten material that's poured into molds and uh, reconfigured into castings. Blacksmithing is different. You don't melt them down. You heat them up to very high temperatures, a glowing red-orange color. And when you know that it's heated enough, you can take it out and work it over an anvil. And like I said, for me, I'm pretty much strictly working with firearms now. It's what I have time for. So there's a lot of repetition to it, and I don't think it is especially difficult. It is warm, and you have to exercise caution. But it's also a very satisfying experience to transform a weapon into a tool that can be used re- for restorative purposes of uh, working with the earth and seed and soil, and trusting in sunshine and warm weather for a seed to germinate and sprout and grow produce that can be harvested and shared with others and delighted in. the interestingly the 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 furnace i use um, the forge itself is propane fired and about the size of a microwave uh, oven and i work right out of my garage Um, so it's not the don't You know, when I talk to older people, new blacksmiths, it's the coal-fired forge they're thinking of, and that's not what this is. So it's all very portable, so I can move it around and go to different places where I'm invited. You need a cutting tool. It's a power tool to cut the barrel sizes into the lengths you need them for either the hand trowel or uh, pickaxe or also called mattock. And it involves using tools to make holes and split things and to allow
5: for handles to be placed. If you've been doing this for a really long time, how many guns do you actually get when you do safe surrenders? How many people show up and say, you know, here's my gun and and given the description you gave, which sounded like you're getting a lot of kind of hunting gear, a lot of, of stuff that maybe doesn't work as well, or widows are turning in you know, stuff that their husband had that they don't want. How often do you actually get the, the kinds of guns that are used to perpetrate you know, mass shootings? How often do you get an AR-15? How often does somebody show up with you know, a, a machine gun and hand it over?
6: last year I, although i've been forging for 5 years now or maybe 6 last year is the first guns to garden tools self safe surrender in the state of Wisconsin it's a growing movement this year we have 2 safe surrender events scheduled and there have also been some very effective gun buybacks for instance hosted by the dane county sheriff's office and they received hundreds of firearms we received 30 firearms last year each had a story which i found very interesting But you referred to the AR-15s. There was one man who pulled up and said, I'm a hunter, I own guns, but my brother died and I inherited these two AR-15s. And he said, these are his words, they serve no other purpose than killing other people and I don't want them in my home. And so that... That, to me, was a very successful self-surrender event. We know that those AR-15s were not stolen by a person who might use them in a dangerous way. They weren't sold to a person who might use them for killing people. And, you know, they were surrendered, and we cut them up with our chop saws.
1: That was A Public Affair host, Ollie Ali Muldrow, talking with Jeff Wilde and Dan Alsace about the upcoming Guns to Gardens event that's on Saturday, June 3rd. And that was just a portion of their full conversation, which can be found online at wortfm.org.
0: Here in Madison, you're never too far away from the water, which means that you're potentially never too far away from a family of newborn ducks. But as baby baby ducklings hatch this spring, they may not be in the best location to safely make their way to the water. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg breaks down what you can do if you find a stranded family of baby ducklings.
8: Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today I wanna talk about what to do if you find an orphan duckling. Whether it's an orphan mallard duckling or a wood duck or a gosling, and that's geese, we have a lot of steps that people need to follow so that we can appropriately be able to rehabilitate them, get them care, get them into a situation where they are going to be able to grow up successfully in a natural type of situation. And I say this because we have had so many ducklings admitted to our wildlife center already because May is that time of year when ducklings are hatching and we have tons of them here. We are already over 50 ducklings. uh, Actually, I think it's over 60 as of today. And it is a I hate to say this, we're swimming in ducks, and it's amazing because they're so cute. But we've had some that have come in as single orphans, some that are small groups, like groups of three or four, and then some, even as today, groups of 15. And it's just around the corner here where we're going to start seeing more and more calls pick up from the downtown Madison area specifically and other areas around Dane County where people have observed either a clutch of ducklings without their mom or the mom is with them, but they're in a really perilous or inappropriate situation. So just as an example, uh, just today we had a group of 15 ducklings that were downtown on the West Wash area of Madison. And if you know that area, if you're a listener in the uh, kind of urban Madison city, you know that that is not a great place for a group of ducklings to try to cross roads to get to either Mendota or to Minona. And those are tricky situations that we are very lucky to have the help from our animal service officers of Dane County intervening on our behalf for. But it's not an easy situation. A lot of our ducks like to nest on balconies up above the street. So if you didn't know, and if you have a house that has a balcony or a porch, you may want to check right now just to see, do you have a mom duck who is sitting and nesting on a potted plant or just on top of the deck? could be five stories tall, you never know. And they may consider hatching and then trying to drop to the ground onto a busy road or getting stuck in a like a courtyard area or something, depending on which side of the building they try to jump off of. So in that case, our animal service officers did everything they could, which is what we would advise folks to do, which is to very carefully, quietly and gently pick up the group of ducklings if they are stuck in an area that there's no way that they could get down or out of or to water for any reason. Um, If they're truly trapped, then gathering them all into a container like a box or a pet carrier. Although be careful with pet carriers because the front door squares are sometimes large enough for ducklings to squeeze through, especially wood ducks, and count to know for sure how many ducklings you have originally and how many you end up with in your box and that will help you to know whether or not you've actually collected all of the ducklings in case one gets really scared or spooked off and runs underneath a bush or vegetation and you know we want to try to make sure we get all of the ducklings together as one group. So the goal is to get them to the nearest water source and mom is very unlikely to leave her clutch of ducklings. So if the mom is there and usually she's present and frantically trying to figure out how to get her babies down or out of this trapped area and get them to water. Well, if you collect them gently in a box, you know, maybe throwing a towel over the top so that they are settling and they're quiet, you know, just a short period of time leaving the box and kind of watching from a distance to see if the mom duck flies down to her babies. And if it's a nice tall box, you know, make sure there's adequate ventilation holes. You should see that the mother duck is going to fly down next to the box or the container, and very likely she'll be vocal, she'll be quacking at them, she's gonna be frantic trying to figure out how do I get these baby ducklings out of this box now so they might be on the ground but now they are contained so folks have had luck taking a and this is where this can get a little challenging taking a couple of extra folks calling the city calling police uh, something to be able to block or stop traffic just temporarily to get the ducks to be able to walk to water sometimes that means leading the mom with the box So there's some really great videos out there, but you know, mom carrying the behind her ducklings as you carry the box and getting them to the most close water source you possibly can. It doesn't always work, but it is uh, important to give it a try because otherwise if it, you know, you can try and it might not be successful, but at least the goal is to try it, to hope that it does work because that's gonna be the best option for these ducks. Instead of just gathering them all up and bringing them to a rehabilitator, you know, giving the chance to reunite is helpful. So, we would encourage folks to call Animal Services if you live in Dane County, if you encounter that type of situation. Their number is 608 255 2345, which is the non emergency number for Dane County. Otherwise, you know, people are very, uh, you know, helpful. They really want to be there for the animals. They want to do what they can to support that animal if they find them. We really strongly advise not feeding that animal, not providing care yourself, not trying to keep them. We've had a number of ducklings that have come in, uh, whether singles or just a couple of them, that have been kept by finders for more than five, six days or more. And remember that ducklings, especially birds of all species, are highly at risk for imprinting, which means that if they spend too much time around humans or people, they start to think that they are humans. And that causes so many problems later down the line where they don't breed appropriately, they don't know their own species, they are quite literally dependent on the care of people to survive and that is a huge problem in our field when folks maybe take too long to get that animal to a rehabilitator especially ducks so if you find a single duckling just keep it in a nice quiet container somewhere safe somewhere quiet don't feed it don't give it water but just make sure you call our wildlife rehabilitation center so we can figure out how soon you can get that duckling to our facility we're typically open 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. here in the Madison area, but we are also open to uh, surrounding counties as needed for hatchling ducklings of all species. So give us a call at 608-287-3235 if you find a group of ducklings. Also check out our website for overnight care instructions and just some suggestions for what to do in the meantime. And give us a call and leave us a voicemail so that you can let us know exactly how many ducks you have, where you found them, and how much time it's been since they've been away from their mom if you know that answer. So thank you everybody in the Dane County and Madison area and all of our listeners for helping to be on the lookout for ducklings that are hatching right now, whether it's in the city, on the roadsides, or downstorm drains, or any other situation they find themselves in. We really appreciate your help in getting these wild animals the care that they need. So thanks for listening here on WORT. Today has been our segment about ducks and what to do in intervening. And please, you know, enjoy uh, the summer and keep a lookout for any sick, injured, or from wildlife. That's what we're here for. So thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly.
1: And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's live local news at
0: 6. Your headline writer this evening was my co-host, John K. Wilson.
1: That's me. Your script editor was Russ Mackey.
0: Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg and Ali Muldrow with A Public Affair.
1: Dave Lawrenson engineered the show.
0: Nate helped produced this newscast.
1: And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, John K. Wilson. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish language news with a nuestro patio. Good night. Thank you